Well, as Gary said, my name is Rick Rivers. I'm a refugee from the first service. <laughs> we've been, uh, how time goes by, we've been attending this church for over 30 years now, and, and uh, I was baptized back here and saved in this, this particular building. It means a lot to me. Uh, 30 years in this church, but I've been a proud American for a lot longer than that, so I'd like to share a few things with you today that have to do with our Christian foundation and the fact that I st believe this is still a Christian nation, even though we are tending to wander in the wrong direction. But before I get started with that, uh, we'd like to recognize veterans this morning. So if there's anybody in the house who's a veteran or active duty, please stand up. Thank you very much. I'm a firm believer, of course I'm prejudiced, but I'm a firm believer that without veterans there wouldn't be a United States of America. So. Okay, now let's give some thought to the Christian foundations of America. Those who came to settle in North America were most, almost exclusively Christians and they brought with, their, with them their faith. In most cases, colonies were run on biblical principles with Christians in charge. In the middle of the 1700s, we experienced what was known as the Great Awakening. It was a revival which swept through the colonies, primarily led by the preacher George Whitfield. In his most famous sermon, Whitfield tells a story about Father Abraham standing at the pearly gates, and a man walks up to him and says, Father, have you got any Presbyterians here? And he says, nope. And he says, have you got any Baptists here? And he says, nope. He says, you got any Catholics here? And he says, nope. And the guy's really you know, confused by this time. He's, he's agitated. He says, well, who have you got here? And he says, we have nothing but Christians, my son. The point of that story is that by the mid-1700s, the colonists had stopped focusing on who wore what or when they ate and were focusing on Jesus. They had a new spirit of evangelism and brotherly love working together to help each other. And when the revolution came, that spirit was a unifying and a strengthening factor for the future United States. And who was at the forefront of this cooperation? The guys were called the Black Regiment. Why were they called the Black Regiment? Because they were all dressed in black. These were preachers. A great many of the officers in the Revolutionary War, American officers in the Army, were, were preachers. And it was not at all uncommon for a guy to sit and listen to a sermon by his preacher, and then that preacher would take off the, the vestments and go out in his Army uniform and lead him into battle. At Yorktown, which was the last major battle of the war <clears throat> and a resounding American victory, when the American troops went into battle, they were led by George Washington's hand-picked general. This was Gen General John Peter Muhlenberg. He was a Lutheran minister when he wasn't leading troops into the fray. Any idea what the rallying cry was for the troops throughout the revolution? No king but Jesus. I don't uh, expect that a lot of deists or atheists were going into battle yelling, no king but Jesus. I think I have a hunch that had to do with the almost complete dominance of Christians in the, in the army at that time. Today we celebrate July 4th, which is Independence Day, the birth, birthday of our Declaration of Independence, the birthday of our country. Were there any Christians in the group who, who drafted and adopted our Declaration of Independence? 56 men signed the Declaration, 53 were Christians. 24 of them were pastors. Again, people tell you that this was not founded as a Christian nation. Don't believe it. Most of the colonies at that time were, if they weren't involved in the, if, if the men were not involved in the uh, writing of the Declaration of Independence, they were writing constitutions for their native states. 
And almost without exception, those constitutions contained a phrase something like this. I do profess faith in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you wanted to run for sheriff of Sebastopol in those days, you had to, you had to swear that oath. If you didn't swear that oath, you didn't have the right to run for office. Once again, it was a Christian beginning. How about our leaders? Were they deists, as some claim? <clears throat> According to those who, who want to rewrite our history, George Washington was a deist. In other words, he believed something along the lines that God created the universe, handed it to man, said adios, and he was gone. No intercession, no guidance, no love, no, no uh, heaven. No way is the proper phrase there, no way. General did not believe that stuff. He was a, he was a lifelong churchgoer, had a pew in the local church almost all of his life, and, and he often rode 20 miles on horse, on a horseback, to get, uh, to get to church. He was what we would call an elder of his church, and on assuming command of the colonial forces, he issued a set of general orders to be used in running the army. Remember that there was no U.S. Army before the revolution started, so this was the very first U.S. Army. This would be the very first set of general orders what was the very first thing that George Washington wanted to make with this uh, point that he wanted to make with his troops? Quote, every officer and man will endeavor to live and to act as becomes a Christian soldier, no matter what the, no matter what the enemy did. That was the first thing that he said to them. During the course of the war, Washington was in the thick of it on many an occasion. After one battle, he had four bullet holes in his coat and he had had two horses shot out from underneath him as he rode them through the battle. A fellow Virginian who witnessed this event incredulously turned to Washington and said, who are you? You know, four bullet holes and two dead horses. I think I would ask that question too. <laughs> Washington would credit, quote, the miraculous care of providence. God was looking out for him. He knew it, he recognized it. God saved him. There are many, many quotes uh, in, in, available in the public library. If anybody tells you that George Washington was a deist, Go get, to, go get some books out of the library and, and read about George Washington. You'll find that he was a Christian. How about Ben Franklin? Surely he was not a Christian. I believe he was. Like Washington, he had his own pew in his family church in Philadelphia, and the family often filled that pew. Edmund S. Morgan, who is a very, very highly respected historian and biographer, and in this case of Benjamin Franklin, says, quote, Franklin seemed never to have doubted the existence of God or his creation of the world, unquote. And if you were to read a book about Ben Franklin today published in recent years, they would for sure tell you that he was a deist, but I, once again, I don't believe it. After the revolution, when the new country was struggling and great men assembled to draft, to draft a constitution, they reached a point where failure seemed entirely possible given the mood of the delegates. Franklin reminded his fellows that during the Revolutionary War, when things got tough, the guys got together and went to church and prayed together and, and, and worshiped together. So at Franklin's suggestion, the delegates took three days and went to over 30 different churches in Philadelphia, praying and singing and worshiping together. They went back to work and we had a constitution. The greatest work of, for the freedom of mankind in the history of the world. Then there's Thomas Jefferson. He was probably the most brilliant man to ever serve the US. At one point, he wrote what is called the Jefferson Bible. This was highly criticized by his detractors for, among other things, leaving out some of the miracles. Why would he do that? None of his enemies bothered to ask that question. I recently learned that at the time he wrote his Bible, he as president of the United States was busy trying to win Native American converts to Christianity 
so he wrote, wrote this Bible for their benefit, to help further integrate them into society. Apparently, he thought that there was an awful lot there for the newly converted to, to absorb, and he and felt that he would leave some things out and then go back and teach them, teach them later. His detractors don't tell you that story, though. They just want you to believe that he was a non-believer. But if that were the case, why would he, when he, as super, okay, let me back up here for a second. The president of the United States was also the superintendent of schools for the Washington, D.C. school district. And as, uh, as the president of that group, he also had the choice of, of textbooks. He chose two, two textbooks for all the kids in the Washington, D.C. school district, the Holy Bible and Isaac Watts' hymnal. The Holy Bible, God's gift to us, and the most popular hymnal of the time, setting and the use of which are guaranteed to strengthen one's Christianity. If Thomas Jefferson weren't a Christian, why in the world would he have the choice of two books and he could, uh, he could enforce the adoption of those two books? He chose the Bible and Isaac Watts' hymnal. Furthermore, regarding the Jefferson Bible, it's interesting to note that as Jefferson lay dying in his bed, he asked a servant to bring him a Bible. The servant brought him a copy of the Jefferson Bible the former president and author of the Declaration of Independence responded, not that one, the real Bible. Two more facts about Christianity in the, in, the in the nation's past. You turn on the evening news and we see the Capitol building every night, don't we, on, on TV. There's that huge, beautiful Capitol building. In the early days of the Republic, they ran out of church space in Washington, D.C. There were so many Christians, they didn't have enough room for them all to worship on Sunday. So the president ordered that the Capitol building be opened up as a Christian church. Every Sunday, the, that Capitol building served as a Christian church. It got, the congregation got to be so large that they had to open up the treasury building next door and let people worship there. And I don't know, if you, <laughs> the IRS is probably in their treasury building. I don't know that I'd want to worship there, but <laughs> anyway, it's interesting that, that the, very, the, the largest Christian church congregation in the land was in Washington, D.C. And finally, let's not forget that the Supreme Court has several times ruled that the U.S. is a Christian nation. The Supreme Court of the United States of America has ruled that there are 87 precedents that prove we are a Christian nation. And still, if you turn on the television or listen to the radio, people are telling you we're not a Christian nation. Anyway, they ruled on this 87 times, and um, I think they ought to be listened to. Anyway, we have a short amount of time. That's all I can share with you this morning. I just want to say God bless you and God bless America. Well, thanks, thanks, Rick. Uh, we wanted to just take one second, and if it's okay with everybody, we sing a couple, a couple of uh, verses of that great inspirational song uh, that goes along with Independence Day here, "America the Beautiful." Would you, would you join with us? Oh, beautiful for spacious skies, for amber waves of gray, for purple mountain majesties above the fruited plain. Brotherhood from sea to 
go? <laughs> no, I don't wanna, didn't want to jump in there. I would have been ashamed of, to miss, miss out on the singing. Now, I want to thank, uh, thank Rick uh, for sharing a bit of our history with us. Uh, you know, it's that old saying of, if you don't know your history, you're uh, doomed to repeat the mistakes of the past and uh, to miss out on the, uh, the blessings of the future. And uh, speaking of, it's Fourth of July weekend. It's, uh, we're celebrating our independence and the war that was fought for that. Uh, so I've selected as the sermon for today uh, to discuss a war of a different kind and a war that is actually still ongoing. I've titled our sermon, Worlds at War, Our Spiritual Battle. I almost titled the sermon, The Cosmic Battle, but I was a bit worried that people coming in might think that we were doing a showing of uh, perhaps like a Star Trek movie or something like that. So I, I hedged my bets a little bit. Um, and also as a bit of a prefatory note, uh, there's a lot of scripture in here. As I was writing the sermon, it just came to me that there was uh, so much that scripture has to say on this. So uh, for the sake of time, I'm, I may not give a lot of time, unless you're really up on your sword drills, to uh, get to every single reference, but many of them will be displayed on the screen behind me, and feel free to make a note or jot it down, but I'll try and keep a good pace that works for everybody. Our keynote passage that we'll use as a springboard is from the book of Ephesians. Uh, it's Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, and Paul writes here very poetically, "'For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers.'" against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Very, very poetic and very profound. Paul here is obviously not referring to any kind of physical authority, no nation, no country, no king, nothing like that. There's something else to which he's referring to that we're waging war against. So as we consider the nature of what this war is, I want us to turn to 1 Peter, 1 Peter 5, 8. Peter here writes, Be of sober spirit, be on the alert, for your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. So be alert. Devil's out there. He's prowling. There are two significant points conveyed in this verse. Firstly, we have an enemy. There is an intelligence out there which is not human and which wants to see us destroyed. In other words, spiritual beings, angels, demons, they exist. They're real. The second point is that the manner of combating such an entity is by being sober-minded. Sober-minded. We're going to explore both of these points a little bit. But first, I think it's important to say that there are some Christians who do not believe in the existence of the devil or of angels or demons at all. Uh, some believe that the references we find to spiritual entities in the Scriptures, which are, is uh, proliferate throughout the Scriptures, are either some reflection of unscientific ignorance of the times, or otherwise there's some metaphor for some kind of moral inner struggle that we have. And I would like to make the case that the Scriptures most certainly take very seriously the real existence of angels and demons, but that they do not advise us to blindly believe any story or account involving them. We'll find that, as with most Christian topics, our faith provides enough room both to firmly believe in angels and demons, but also enough space to satisfy the skeptic in all of us. 
I believe that skepticism, a little bit of skepticism, is a healthy thing. It keeps you critical. It keeps you scrutinizing ideas. So if you turn to Jude uh, chapter 1, verses 5 through 7, Jude, who's believed to be the brother of Christ, writes, Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels, who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in, in chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, served as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Here we have Jude, again, the brother of Christ, speaking of what would be understood as two definitively historical events. First, the deliverance from Egypt, a crucial part of Israel's salvation history, and subsequently, uh, additionally, the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah. Two events that would have been considered by anyone reading it to be statements of historical fact. And sandwiched right in between them, he makes a reference to angels who have rebelled against their positions of authority and are currently being subdued by the power of Jesus, awaiting judgment on what he calls the great day. Now, it would be very, very odd if this were simply a reference to some kind of fable or imagined story. Why? Well, because it takes away from the surrounding illustrations. Jews says that it was Jesus who delivered Egypt and later judged. It was Jesus who oversaw the punishment afflicted on Sodom and Gomorrah, and it's Jesus who keeps the fallen angels in chains. So it is somewhat evident that the existence and fate of spiritual creatures is of importance to us. It's relevant to our daily lives. Peter feels so. Jude felt so. Just like the historical deliverance from Egypt matters. However, we also find encouragement not to overdo things when it comes to thinking about the spiritual world. Paul writes in Colossians chapter 2, verse 18, Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going about in details about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind. And continuing in 1 Timothy 1, 3, he also writes, Charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardships from God that is by faith. So Paul's saying don't, don't engage in well, asceticism, which is the unnecessary deprivation of any kind of pleasure from yourself, that any kind of, the view that any pleasure is bad. Don't, don't do that. Don't go on worshiping angels. Don't get caught up in myths. Don't get caught up in genealogies. Those just produce speculation, which takes you away from proper Christian living. So Paul's advising us to exercise discernment. Neither turning talk of angels into some kind of emotional idol, nor giving in to unfounded speculations. Because as far as the devil is concerned, there are two ways in which we can fundamentally miss the mark and lose in our spiritual battles against him. Firstly, perhaps more obviously, you can believe he doesn't exist, because whoever would waste their time fighting an opponent that isn't there? But secondly, we can invest too much time imagining that angels and demons are the cause of everything that happens in our lives. That, too, puts unnecessary power into their hands. And Peter himself makes it abundantly clear that spiritual forces are not the only ones which we have to contend with. In 1 Peter 
2.11, he writes, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. See, the desires of our flesh are themselves a formidable opponent. And when we mistake our flesh for something demonic, we've misdiagnosed our problems. And like treating any physical disease, when you misdiagnose the illness, you recommend the improper cure. And when you recommend the improper cure, at best, you remain as you are. And at worst, you're actually brought into quite a bit more harm. Again, be sober-minded. Be sober-minded. You combat the devil with a sound mind, not with emotional frenzy. So with that in mind, let's consider a final reflection on the nature of the war we are fighting. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 26-30, Paul writes, for, you, for consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise, according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to shame the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. You see, I picture here the image of guerrilla warfare. Guerrilla warfare. God doesn't wage war according to the patterns of this world. He often chooses those among us whom the enemy would least expect. Abraham and Sarah, who are old and beyond childbearing years, to become the father and the mother of nations. Moses. I love Moses. Moses, who stuttered. It's, it's hilarious to me. God's speaking to him from the burning bush. And he's calling him to this grand mission to confront what at the time was the most powerful authority, the powerful nation on, on the planet, and, and bring his people out of slavery. And Moses says, why are you choosing me? Why are you picking? I stutter. You, you want me to give these speeches? I, I can't. <laughs> I stumble over my words. And David, David, a murderer and an adulterer, to become a man after God's own heart. You see, we're fighting behind enemy lines, as it were. And until the final judgment comes, the wisdom of God has allowed the forces of evil some freedom, some freedom, which also provides us the opportunity to freely enlist in the fight. So if we are to be soldiers behind enemy lines, outnumbered and outgunned, at least in worldly terms, we had best consider with what weapons God has furnished us to fight. So looking at our weapons in the war, we have 2 Corinthians 10, verses 3 through 5. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We destroy arguments in every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take captive every thought to obey Christ. See, that's some pretty powerful language. Paul is using the terminology of siege warfare and of taking captives in order to articulate what we do as Christians in our daily lives. And he's telling us that the distinguishing mark of how the Christian fights is with the mind. It's with the truth. 
with the reality of who God has revealed himself to be. We are to bring rogue thoughts into line under Christ. We are commanded to combat arrogant opinions with that reality of God's character. Because anybody, anybody can use force to get their way. If you have enough force, you can be dead wrong on just about everything and still bulldoze your way through. But when you have the truth on your side, you can speak to the needs of the heart. And like the walls of Jericho, bring down the walls of your opposition without even raising a finger. Of course, to be fair, we probably don't always experience things in our lives with that sense of grandeur, that grand scale. When we defend our faith, it probably feels tiresome. It sometimes maybe feels mundane. Maybe it feels like we never make any progress. But we aren't without resources. God has given us gifts in the fight, some weaponry we have which the world does not. And the first I'd like us to consider is prayer. And going back to our keynote passage, Ephesians 6, 18, with all prayer and petition, pray all times in the Spirit. And with this in view, be on alert. Again, that language of being alert, being aware, being mindful. With all perseverance and petition for all the saints, and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth to boldly proclaim the mystery of the gospel. I just, I just think that's a wonderful bit of transparency you get from Paul. Sometimes we, we lift, I mean, Paul is a man of great character and great knowledge, but sometimes we imagine that he just knew everything. You know, he's, he's a Pharisee of Pharisees. And here he is, you know, he's praying. He says, look, I, I could really use some help. Me too. You know, like pray for all the saints and also kind of for me because I don't know if I have the words. Uh, I could use some words, <laughs> you know. And yeah, I just think that's, that's a beautiful picture of humility that you get there. Again, we find that language of, of alertedness, like a sentry at his post. You have to be alert, because the devil's prowling, he's out there, he's waiting for an opportunity, and he doesn't give a second chance. So what does prayer do? Well, to keep with the military language, prayer is like a supply line, which channels and transports the essentials to the front line where the battle is being fought. Paul gives us, again, a very practical example of prayer in action. He asks that the church members in Ephesus pray for all the saints, pray for all the Christians, as well as for himself, that he'd have the words, which is a wild and amazing thing when you think about it. You see, it's taken us thousands of years of civilization and the best minds of all the centuries to bring technology to the point where you or I could pull out our phones and call somebody, communicate with somebody on the other side of the planet. But guess what? God beat us to it. Because over 2,000 years ago, Christians were already in a position to communicate over any distance. We were already able to channel our love into the lives of others and petition God Almighty for whatever graces and mercies our brothers and sisters in Christ might need. You know, sometimes I feel that we just have adopted a very, very dim view of what prayer is. It's almost as if we see prayer as a thing we defer to when we can't actually do anything, when we feel disempowered, a cheap substitute for activity. We see our neighbor facing a hardship, and with a deep sigh, we say, oh, that's, that's too bad, that's, that's awful. Um, you know, I, I hope things go better for them. I'll keep them in prayer. And then we say a few words and we're done with it. But prayer is something so much deeper, so much richer than that. 
Prayer means the outpouring of grace from God's limitless storehouses into our lives, empowering us to take action for God wherever we can. It's a thing of empowerment. And where we can't directly take action, where we can't directly help, it means embracing the invisible spiritual unity which binds all believers of all places and all times together into one body, the church. It means becoming more of who we are in Christ, for as a man thinks, so he acts. And what better way to take on the mind of Christ than to come before Him willingly and intentionally for every important thing in life. Which leads us right into our second great weapon in the fight, fellowship. Prayer into fellowship. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 23 through 25 writes, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet, with, to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. You see, here we're warned against the danger of neglecting to meet together, something which I'm sure we've all struggled with at some point or another. Who here has read uh, the, or is familiar with the screw tape letters, C.S. Lewis's screw tape letters? Okay, I think this might be the, the winning congregation of all the services. Saturday night I had like two people and I had to admonish them. I had to give them the homework. Uh, but for those of you who aren't familiar with the Screwtape Letters, it's uh, written by C.S. Lewis, and it's a fictionalized account of these letters that are written between uh, two demons, an older demon and a younger demon. And the younger demon has been assigned to this guy, uh, lucky guy, to, uh, to try and trip him up at all these points. And so the younger demon reports to the older demon, and you know he says things like, oh, I tried this, it kind of worked, this it didn't work, and the older demon gives him advice. So there's a passage in there which is just beautiful when he's talking about church going. And he's saying, I'm trying to work around this guy about how he goes to church, you know. And uh, so this is the older demon, Screwtape, writing to the younger one. He says, you mentioned casually in your last letter that the patient has continued to attend one church and one only since he was converted and that he is not wholly pleased with it. May I ask you what you are about? Why have I no report on the causes of his fidelity to the parish church? Do you realize that unless it is due to indifference, it is a very bad thing? Surely you know if a man can't be cured of church going, the next best thing is to send him all over the neighborhood looking for a church that suits him until he becomes a taster or a connoisseur of churches. The search for a suitable church makes the man a critic or the enemy, God wants him to be a pupil. Lewis just has such a great way of speaking right to the heart of it. And part of being a member of the body of Christ, being part of the church, means accepting that you can't do everything. It means coming to terms with the fact that we have certain strengths and certain weaknesses, and that our strengths are best served or best expressed in service to the body, and our weaknesses are least harmful under the loving guidance of the body at large. See, the trick of the demons in the screw tape letters is to reverse that formula. It's to get you to believe that you get to do whatever you want, when you want, and if the church is convenient for your agenda, if it serves those purposes, then you may deem it acceptable and use it like any tool or stepping stone towards your goal. 
If it isn't, then you can abandon it in favor of something else. See, but if that's your view, you end up like the hand which amputates itself because it doesn't like what the head is telling it to do or it doesn't like something else about the rest of the body of which it's a part. It's a certain kind of freedom, sure, but it's a freedom which always ends in death. And the final weapon I want us to consider is the Word, the Word itself, prayer, fellowship, and the Word. Hebrews 4.12 writes, For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of the soul and spirit of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight. Now, some might believe that this verse refers to Scripture, and in a sense it does. But in a deeper way, it's speaking of Jesus himself. Christ cleaves through every deception down to the deepest fabric of reality itself to expose it to the light of the truth. Now, I'm about to tell you all something which all of us will spend the rest of our lives pondering. And I'm convinced we'll never fully get it. God did something to humanity when he became a man. He did something to us, something wild and wonderful and beyond the scope of our language to fully encompass. He didn't just die for our sins. He didn't just reveal more of the character of the Father. He didn't just restore us to where Adam and Eve were when we all started. He's exalted us. He's elevated us to a place we only could have dreamed to have reached before. Recall at the ascension of Jesus that he didn't cast aside his body, his human body, his human body, when he rose. It because it wasn't just a vessel. It wasn't just a vessel for him to do his job. He didn't just say, I, I've used this to appear like you are, and now I'm done with it, so there it goes, and there I go. And he took that human body up to sit at the right hand of the Father. I mean, think about it. Like, really think about it. We're changed. We're changed. The fullness of what that means, I won't dare to guess. But I believe you can witness the early church beginning, even way back then, beginning to, to sense that shift that's already occurred. 1 Corinthians 6.3, Paul writes, Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more then matters pertaining to this life? You see, that, that passage is referring to legal disputes that were occurring in the church at Corinth. And people, church members, Christians, were having disputes among each other, and they couldn't resolve them. And then they were going to the secular authorities to try and have those disputes uh, reconciled. And Paul's saying, what are you guys doing? He's saying, you guys have the Spirit. He says, you think the world knows better? What, are you, what message are you saying? What are you saying to yourselves? And then he throws on top, he says, don't you guys know we're going to judge angels? That's what we're looking forward to? So, if you guys can't get this sorted out between yourselves, you're not going to be ready for that responsibility. I think it's interesting because you always see in the Old Testament, and even in the New Testament prior to Christ, you always see whenever an angel shows up, it's always something like crazy and everyone's confused and or afraid and nobody knows what's going on. So, you know, there'll be parts where there's a battle about to take place and then the commanders of the battle of the Israelites will look out and then they'll just like turn to their sides and there'll be this guy standing there and be like, where'd he come from? 
And then, like, are you for us or are you against us? You know, and then and nobody knows fully. You know, angels always have this sense of being up here. They, they, like, they have more power than us. Like, they know more. They're more in the know. And yet, Paul says, we're going to judge them. We're going to judge them. Why? Well, when God came here, he didn't become an angel. God never has become an angel. But God did become a human being. Something's changed. So if we're to be in a position of authority over angels, what do you imagine the fallen ones think about that? I'd bet they're none too pleased about the shift in management. So when you're lifted up as we have been, you receive more power, you receive more glory, more authority, but it also makes you a bigger target. And since Christ dealt a death blow to death itself, the forces which serve destruction have only got more desperate to try and claw something away from that eternal victory. So having looked now at the nature of the war and some of the weapons that God has given us to fight in it, I want us to consider how we answer the call to arms, how we are to answer the call to arms. Romans chapter 13, verses 12 through 14 Paul writes, the night is almost gone and the day is near. Therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in promiscuity and sensuality, not in jealousy and strife, but put on the Lord Jesus and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. You see, Paul is telling us there is no time to wait We're only given one day at a time. And since we don't know when our final hour will be, then as far as we're concerned, for all intents and purposes, it is our final hour. It's all of our final hours right now. We're only given the day. So the dawn's coming. I mean, that much we know. But we've got to be ready. How ready? Well, let's look at Hebrews chapter 12, verse 4. The author of Hebrews, of which there is some dispute, some people think it was Paul, but there's some disagreement. But the author says, You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. Now, I can't, it's probably strange, but I can't help but find some humor <laughs> in this verse. I mean, imagine like going to your boss at work and you're going to ask for that raise or that promotion. And, you know, after citing all your accomplishments and all your stellar performance, you know, your boss lo- looks up and says, no, it's, uh, you, you've done a lot of good. I, I acknowledge that. Uh, but there's just one thing. There's just one thing. Um, I feel like I have to mention. I noticed that you haven't yet gone to the point of shedding blood for the sake of your job. And I mean, maybe some of you here are thinking like, no, no, this is a conversation I've had several times with my boss. This is real. So, <laughs> and I am shedding my blood. So this will hit you in a different way. But it's, it's a bold criticism to make, and the reason why it's a joke, or at least I hope it's a joke, when talking about your job is that it goes beyond the limits of what your work can reasonably demand of you. But it makes a powerful statement about what the Christian life is, because for the author of Hebrews, it's evidently not unreasonable to make that criticism. Because being a Christian isn't a hobby, and it certainly isn't a job. It's your life. It's 100% of who you are. And sometimes in fighting our battle, God asks us to be willing to give it all for Him. For some of us, that might mean our finances, our money. For others, it might mean our reputation. And yes, 
It might mean your life. It might mean your life. But you see, that can only be determined by being attentive to the call of God and how He speaks in your life, in your life, in your life. You can't determine that by looking at somebody else's life. You see, even what God asks of your neighbor might be radically different from what God asks of you. Because in the deeper spiritual sense, we're all individuals before God. We're all individuals. You see, in the world, you might be able to hide your cowardice among the crowds. You might be able to obscure your lack of commitment by comparing yourself to others. You might be able to drown out the fact that you fled the battle in a sea of excuses. But before God, in that great day of which Jude wrote, there you'll be a solitary individual. And as an individual, you will have to give an accounting. God isn't like a professor who occasionally forgets to pay attention to you in the classroom and who won't notice your lack of participation. God isn't like the mistreated friend who forgets the debt that you owe him after many years have passed. And he isn't like the masses of the world who can be duped into accepting the image of yourself that you have carefully crafted for it to see. God knows you. In fact, he knows you better than you know yourself. He knits you together in your mother's womb. He knows the numbers of hairs on your head. He made you for glory, for nobility, to judge even the angels themselves. But to inherit that high calling, to become what you were destined for, you have to take up the fight. If you were here two weeks ago when I uh, last spoke, uh, I made a reference to uh, the Space Trilogy, C.S. Lewis's Space Trilogy, uh, how many of us have heard of or, or read? Okay, uh, less than the Screwtip Letters, but still, still beating the other services. Um, it's such a wonderful, wonderful story. Lewis wrote that this trilogy. It's a science fiction trilogy. Um, and in the second book, Paralandra, the main character, Ransom, ends up having to go toe-to-toe in a physical confrontation with either a demon or the devil himself. Um, and it's a physical fight. And I can't help but, but including it here. I want us all to pay attention to what realization Ransom comes to in the course of the fight. What strikes him as he realizes that he is now all in, that he's had to go all in. Ransom went forward for what seemed the thousandth time, knowing clearly he could not fight much more. He remembers realizing almost at once that he was reaching delirium. He wavered. Then, an experience that perhaps no good man can have in our world came over him. A torrent of perfectly unmixed and lawful hatred. The energy of hating, never before felt without some guilt, without some dim knowledge that he was failing fully to distinguish the sinner from the sin, rose into his arms and legs till he felt that they were pillars of burning blood. What was before him appeared no longer a creature of corrupted will. It was corruption itself to which will was attached only as an instrument. Ages ago it had been a person. But the ruins of personality now survived in it only as weapons at the disposal of a furious, self-exiled negation. It is perhaps difficult to understand why this filled Ransom, not with horror, but with joy. 
The joy came from finding at last what hatred was made for. As a boy rejoices with an axe, rejoices on finding a tree, or a boy with a box of colored chalks rejoices on finding a a pile of perfectly white paper. So he rejoiced in the perfect congruity between his emotion and its object. Bleeding and trembling with weariness as he was, he felt that nothing was beyond his power. And when he flung himself upon the living death, he was astonished. And yet, on a deeper level, not astonished at all at his own strength. You see, the character Ransom realized at that moment that there is a right place for fighting. And there is a right place even for hatred when you are confronted by pure evil. And guess what? Ransom's fight? It's our fight. It's our fight too. We are surrounded by evil. It may not take a physical form, as in the story, but it's there all the same. There are principalities. There are powers. There are authorities. There are cosmic powers over this present darkness. They are at work in the world, and they won't take a break while you wait to get your act together. And don't think you can remain neutral in the conflict either. No, any hope of that was thoroughly dashed at the incarnation of Jesus. God took on a face like you and me. Now when the dark forces look on us, they cannot help but see their enemy. So you've got to take up arms and fight. You've got to answer the call and give it everything you have. And when you fought and you fought and you fought and you've given your all and you've got nothing left to give and you're still called to keep on fighting, remember you're not alone. When the final ounces of your natural strength are nearly depleted and you're taking all the blows the enemy can throw at you and keep throwing punches. When you're running the race and there's no end in sight and your lungs are burning for air and your legs are flying at full speed, do not forget the ones who ran this race before you. And when your wells have all run dry and you're crying out for thirst, remember the one who also thirsted on the cross. And then... A part of you will know, a part of you will know, will realize that the night is nearly over. However dark it feels, a new dawn is close at hand, and all the pain and all the struggle and all the opposition is but the last desperate attempt of the defeated powers to delay the inevitable. So for that great day to come, which will be without ending, whose light will throw back every shadow and whose glory will fill the heavens, let's Take what graces we've been given and fight the good fight. And as we move towards communion, I want us to consider that communion itself is one of those graces. It's one of those weapons we have in the fight. We're making a statement with what we do. We're we're planting the flag of victory in the enemy's territory, and we're using the very symbol, a very symbol of the thing which the enemy thought was its victory, but was actually its defeat, to put it back in their faces. We're saying, you thought God was dead here? You thought you'd killed him? You thought you'd won? Well, guess what? He's alive, and he's alive in every one of our hearts. He's alive in heaven. He's won. You've got nothing to say to that. So when you take communion, feel that that you're united with every Christian warrior of every century and every country and every time and everything like that. They've been doing this since the beginning. So let's take it in that spirit and let's pray.
Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gifts that you have given us, the weapons you've given us in the fight. And we, we know that though we are at war, the victory is already won. And that that's what faith is for, God. That you've, you've won the victory, you've done the work. And it's just a matter of us holding fast to that eternal security and cleaving to that reality, God, long enough to wait out the last bit of the night and look forward to that new dawn, Lord. We thank you. We thank you that you've already won the war for us. We thank you for each other. We thank you for the church. We thank you for prayer. We thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.